You're listening to the Plus Music Podcast with Brian and Nick, where we're talking to artists about what it's like to get your music heard in the ever-changing music industry, uh, how it is to use tools like social media and other platforms as an independent artist in a changing music business. Today we sit down with San Francisco singer, songwriter, and producer Chuck Prophet. With over 25 albums to his name, Chuck takes us down memory lane from playing UK festivals Reading, Leeds, and Glastonbury in the 80s with Green on Red, laying down guitar lines at some of my favorite Cake records, to writing songs for Bruce Springsteen, Hart, Alejandro Escobedo, and more. Here's more from Chuck now. Welcome to the Plus Music Podcast. Uh, Brian and Nick sitting here today. We have from San Francisco, California, American singer, songwriter, and record producer Chuck Prophet. Chuck, here's a couple of things that we've learned about you before we jump into the interview. We know you've been the real deal since your green on red days in the 80s. You released 10 records with them from 85 to 2005. Uh, You started releasing solo records in 1990, 15 in fact, including your most recent record, The Land That Time Forgot. We'll talk more about that. Uh, Honestly, I found out about you when I was touring with a band Convoy in the 90s and I met some friends in Sacramento a guy, Rusty Miller from the band Jackpot, who played on a Cake record. And I asked, who's the other guitar player on this record? And he talked about this guy, Chuck Prophet. I've been a fan ever since. You've since gone on to write for Bruce Springsteen, Hart, Alejandro Escobedo, just to name a few. You continue to tour and record with your wife, Stephanie Finch, who's a singer, keyboardist, and guitarist herself. You produced a Kim Carnes record? This is no, great. No, 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 no. This is, okay. <laughs> This is great. This is great. Yes. I I wrote a song with Kim Carnes and she cut it on her record and I cut it on my record. And that's about the kinkiest thing I've got for you all day. (laughs) That's great. Well, we can't wait to hear more. Welcome to the show, Chuck Prophet. Good to meet you, Chuck. Thanks for joining. Yeah. So, you know, before we got started, we were talking about, you know, how the business sort of works and how information out there you've made a career in music and you know not a lot of people get that chance so maybe we start with going back to you know wherever you want to start and kind of say i think the best place to start is what what got what got you there and what kept you going well, I think for me, it was records, you know, I didn't have any, uh, I don't have, I don't come from a particularly musical family. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my dad was a bit of a workaholic and he kind of wanted me to, uh, you know, he set me up with golfing lessons out of the blue. Nice. And I was like, you know, I want to take, uh, I'm interested in guitar. So my sister brought home a kind of classical guitar from CYO camp. If anybody remembers CYO camps, a Catholic youth uh, organization or something. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I grew up in Orange County. I grew up in a town oh, cool. uh, called La Havre. It's like 20 miles inland from you know Newport and Huntington. And yep. so I was the kind of a surfer kid. Everybody in my neighborhood, oh my, is this really gonna do this right now? Are you really gonna do this? <laughs> uh, hold on guys hold on can you believe this murphy's law man we'll just yeah. uh we'll just edit that part out and okay hold on let i'm gonna go to my um i'm gonna go to my settings and i'm gonna lose my warm camera there uh 
video. FaceTime. Boo. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm just like every other schmuck out there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it was really records for me. My, you know, um, you know, the Stones and, and whatever, Credence and whatever was in the house, you know, and, uh, and I did grow up in a wonderful time. I mean, everybody played guitar. Um, and I think really music was in the air, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, but everybody I knew played guitar. I, I mean, th there was no way that I considered it a vocation, you know, mm -hmm. that's like crazy, you know, and that's, that's where things start to get more interesting, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when, when did the vocation start right out of high school or? Oh no, like junior high, you know, like I was in bands, you know, we played covers and, you know, we might play a house party or a kegger or something and. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I guess my family moved, I mean, I was in bands and that's kind of what you did. I, my family moved to the Bay Area. My father got transferred. So I was living in the East Bay here uh, in, uh, you know, the East Bay from San Francisco. And I started, you know, I was aware of punk rock. I was an avid reader. I always read the paper. You know, the, I, I used to read the LA Times when I was just a you know, baby. And so I, I knew there was something going on, and I used to tune in to this station called Calx, K-A-L-X, uh, out of uh, UC Berkeley. And on I think on Tuesday nights they had a thing called the Maximum Rock and Roll Show, and it was these two old guys with like this kind of pro progressive political agenda, hmm. and they would play records that were made by local bands, you know, um, and they also would play imports from England. And when they ran out of those things, they would play like the Kinks and Mata Hoople, you know? Yeah. Because there was a limited number of punk rock records. And they would interject their progressive political thing into the mix. And I was, you know, I was uh, totally in tune with that. And so, yeah, I, I, I heard about the Dead Kennedys and, and uh, you know, I, one, one, one uh, show they said there's going to be a show this weekend at the Temple Beautiful. It's on Geary Street in the city. You know, no alternative, Wall of Voodoo, uh, Black Randy. Like, you know, it was like one of those things where there was like eight bands, you know? Mm -hmm. Like a rest so of the radio I, festival I, type I, thing. I borrowed my mother's Toyota and without telling her, went into the city, me and some friends, and we saw a, just an incredible show of one band after the other laying it on the line, you know? And they were all completely different. This was before hardcore, you know? Mm-hmm. So you might have a band that's kind of really influenced, showing their British influences on their sleeve, kind of a rockabilly trio kind of a thing. And then, you know, Wall of Voodoo comes out and they've got like grandma's <laughs> organ on the stage with a beatbox, you know, and, and he's got a megaphone and a, a long coat, like a gym, like he looks like Jimmy Cagger, radio. And, 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 and all the drummer did was occasionally he would accent a, a something with like a hitting a trash can lid, you know, mm -hmm. and it was, you know, wildly um, original, you know, mm -hmm. and then they left the stage and somebody else came on the stage, you know, and then eventually at like two in the morning, um, I was like, whoa, you know what, so, there was so much to soak up. Then this band comes on the stage, they're wearing like... Carnaby Street tailored suits. They've got beetle boots on, and um, 
and their guitars, you know, the Vox guitars and, and, and 12 strings up, like up high, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 uh, the, the audience took one look at those guys and half of them split. Like, you know, what is, what the fuck is this? Sean on you know, and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I stayed, you know, and I was looking at the guitar. I was like right at the edge of the stage, like, you know, you know, and I'm looking up at the guitar player. He's looking down at me. I'm looking at him. And I think something happened. Some kind of energy was transferred that night. And how was I to know that like 10 years later, I would be over at that guy's apartment buying cocaine. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so, so I always tell people, you know, hang on to your dreams, you know? So that, that band was the, <laughs> that band you was be the, doing that. If you want. That, that band was the flame and groovies. I remember that band. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And so um, it was a classic lineup. Also, it was probably one of the last shows that the Chris Wilson, Cyril Jordan, Mike Wilhelm, uh, all three of them up front, probably one of the last shows that that lineup did. So, you know, when we were driving the Toyota back home, I was like, with these guys that I was with, I was like, I think we could do this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I got some ideas. <laughs> right. And, that, and, that, and that's really put me on the path. That was the you know? itch. That was the itch that needed to be scratched. It put oh, me on the path because prior to that, like the thing about punk rock for me was that it, it erased the line between the audience and the stage, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was so like like everybody there was so uh, interesting, you know. And girls really like took the thrift store chic like all the way, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was also part of it that that really, uh, as people like to say, totally the scene with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how <laughs> creative it was. That's you know, and, and, and in San Francisco, unlike L.A., in San Francisco, all the bands came out of the um, art institute. So like bands like the Sleepers and the Avengers and Crime, like these bands, they couldn't play, you know, mm-hmm. but they had great posters, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and, you know, like really great merch, great, yeah, great merch, you know, and and so that's kind of the San Francisco tradition, you know. Whereas in the East Bay, a lot of the bands that I got into later, like the Rubenus and uh, Jonathan Richmond and Great Kin Band and those bands, you know, a lot of them. They, they might have come out of Berkeley High, which had a great, great musical uh, programs, you know, and so that's where you get like the ska bands. That's where you get like the Tower of Power bands, you know, out of like the East Bay where there's good, um, you know, where there's out of, out of the musical education system. Mm-hmm. So, so I landed Ivy. right in the middle of all that stuff. Yeah. You know? Remember a band called Operation Ivy it came out of the East Bay, I think. Remember that band? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know. I remember the, the guy that I remember is um, the guy from Rancid. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, um, I remember him being around. You know, I Armstrong. remember seeing him around. He he came and saw the band that I played with. Uh, what's his name? He's a character. Tim Armstrong, I think, is his name. Well, yeah. Is Tim Armstrong not the uh, Op Ivy guy? Yeah, he, he is the but he's the rancid and the op Ivy guy. Oh, unless God, there's a different okay. dude in there. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really go to. I mean, I might have been to Gilman once or twice, but that was for like kids, so their parents dropping them off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you so you kept cracking at it. You kept playing in bands. You kept going forward. 
And when was like the first band that kind of took you out of the Bay and you started touring? Well, I toured when I was 18 in this band called Wild Game. We had a two week engage engagement in Calgary uh, uh, in the winter of, I don't know what Ugh, year that would have been. Fun. The oh, winter yeah. when I was 18. Yeah, we drove all the way up there. We played in one hotel for six nights, four sets a night. And then we played another hotel. It had to do with like um, liquor, uh, you know, ordinances mm -hmm. or yeah. zoning laws or whatever. So yeah, that was kind of an education, and we, you know, we got in fights and everything with other people. You know, it was like it was. We definitely got our Hamburg uh, fantasies uh, out there, but you know, around 1983 or something, you know, hardcore was in full effect. And nobody was really doing anything unexpected, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so for me, that was like kind of not a great time. Uh, Color by Numbers uh, by Culture Club wasn't uh, a big rocketing influence. I mean, I mean, it was hardcore. It was like the, all these bands that came from all over the country, like, you know, Minor Threat, you know, Minor mm -hmm. Threat, they used to have those X's on their hands. Yeah. Uh, because it, because they were under 21. That's something the Mabuhe used to do. I have some pictures where I have those X's on my hands and, and not in a prideful way, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was like there were less, there were no girls at the shows and, and there were a lot of rules, all this dogma attached to it. And I, I just didn't, I just didn't dig it, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. um, but one night, I went to, I, I used to go to the college radio station in San Francisco State, and so I always got tickets to shows. And one night I went to the On Broadway and uh, to see DOA and, uh, and this band opened called Rank and File, you know. And they came out and they were doing a full, like, boom, chicka boom, chicka boom, like, country thing. And the punks didn't know what to make of it, you know. Um, but Chip and Tony Kinman were in the band. The brothers they had they had been in a band called um, uh, uh, "It'll Come to Me." So they had their punk rock cred, you know. Mm -hmm. But it very it really confused the punks. And by the end of the by the end of their set, you know, they were they were all like square dancing practically. Yeah. And, and Alejandro was in that band, Alejandro Escovedo. No way. I'm good and friends with his brother down here in San Diego, Mario. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, it all started down there with the Zeros. Totally. Yeah. I saw the Zeros. Yeah, they still hang out at, you know, my local dive bar, the, the Riviera. So, you know, that was kind of exciting. And then there were some of these other bands like the Paisley Underground bands, like the Three O'Clock and the Rain Parade. And I went to see some of them. Some of those bands looked better on paper than in real life you know mm -hmm. but um then i ran into this band green on red and uh mm -hmm. you know they were it's hard to describe you know what they were like um but they were kind of amazing i, I ended up joining that band hmm. and so uh, for a I long joined, time you joined that band yeah i think i joined them in like 84 and they said you know i was 20 years old and they said look you're going to need your passport because we're going to sweden in a couple of weeks and so awesome. uh, from there you know um that's good it was just like about 10 years non-stop you know i mean we mm -hmm. did sometimes we were doing a record every nine months it seemed like wow 
What um and so dates? I, I mean, European three month slogs, you know, with no days mm -hmm. off. So that that that's like the 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 moment. It sounds like when you start when you became a professional musician in the sense that you weren't home anymore. All you were doing was touring mostly. What what was the first thing that you noticed about being in that world that you didn't expect? Um. Well, I, I don't. I, I, that's a difficult question. I um. Yeah. You know. Well, uh, it's just, I guess more. It's like, what was the first thing you noticed that you didn't intend to notice, or what was the best thing about it? Maybe even easier question. Like, what was the best part? Well, geez, uh, I, I suppose the best part about it was really the adventure, you know? Yeah, 20, you're I mean, in Sweden. It's kind of all wow. I signed up for. And, you know, we went to Italy and, the, the, you know, repeatedly and Greece and Spain and uh, these Mediterranean countries were great. We, you know, we played all the time up and down the Angry Island. You know, we played with so many, so many gigs with, you know, bands like the Bunnymen and, um, you know, in 1985, really it was uh, the smiths were just kind of taken off we were booked by an agency that had the smiths they had new order yeah. um, they had a young band called james and so we were kind of in mm. the right we were sort of in the heart of the heart of the heart of it you know yeah. and it was a wonderful time to be out doing it mm -hmm. and you know we got signed uh, by a major label in no time and uh that's when things started to get, you know, we started to hit the wall a little bit, you know, against up against our limitations. <laughs> what does that, what does that mean? Like from, from a business creativity push pull thing or. Well, we were kind of failing upwards, you know, like, um, yeah. you know, we used to call it living stupidly, you know, we, we things were working for us. And then, uh, you know, we've had a record out on Enigma that was a big college radio record and, and unlike a band like REM, who now I've had time to really get to know them and and um, and I see how every challenge they had in front of them, they somehow or another rose to it, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, it looks like we're gonna have to make videos. And I heard they were never gonna make a video, you know? And then next thing I know, I see Michael Stipe, he's running along, jumping up on that 18 wheeler and he's got his sleeves rolled up and looking right into the camera. And it's like, well, they didn't seem to have much problem with that, yeah. figuring that out, you know. But mm -hmm. yeah, for us, it was like the first record we did for Phonogram or Polygram was uh, they put us in a studio in England, up a regional, some regional city up there near, ba I think it was in Bath, England. And Oof. it was during the festival season. So we played Glastonbury. We played this, all these other festivals on the European continent. And we had like a week off here and there, you know? Hmm. So they put us in this studio and they said, just record, do whatever you want. There's a house engineer, you know? And so we did, we recorded like seven or eight songs and um, Dan Stewart, the singer, you know, the leader of the group, he and I stayed behind. We went to a studio in London, a very, you know, practical studio. We mixed it. Uh, and we went home and, you know, we didn't hear anything for a while. And finally they said, you know, we're thinking we're just going to put this out hmm. as is. We didn't know if we were making demos or we were trying to get to the next level. And they're like, yeah, we're just going to put it out. And so a funny thing happened. You know, we had a song called uh, Time Ain't Nothing. And kind of a, you know, clever rewrite of uh, 
you know, Brown Eyed Girl or something, you know. Uh, I, mean, I always tease the singer Danny because he wrote that song, you know, and, and uh, I mean, I think it was every chord that he knew, you know. Um, in, in just the right order, you know, yeah. and uh, and um, you know it it started getting, it started getting some BBC airplay, and it was actually uh, did respect you know respectfully, and um, and then we made a little video. MTV started playing it. The record started selling as an import in the states. Then Polygram put it out in the states. We did an American tour. Alex Chilton uh, was our opening act. No, dude, that's insane. And that's an interesting story because, um, you know, I became friends with his band, became friends with Alex and stuff, but they were pretty low to the ground, you know. They were pretty low to the ground in terms of the way they toured. Mm -hmm. And um, just an old Buick with no air conditioning and the, you know, gear with no cases in the trunk. Ugh. But um, after that, you know, Phonogram's like, well, we want you guys to get to the next level. And that's always difficult, you know. So mm -hmm. the expe expectations started to pile up on us. And then we made an album tour called The Killer Inside Me. It's where we started working with producer Jim Dickinson. And he later worked with The Replacements, you know. But, um, I mean, I found him in Hernando, Mississippi. He hadn't produced a record and God, I don't know, since this Big Star's third or something in the you know, mm -hmm. mid-70s. So... He had worked on the, I knew that he worked on those soundtracks with Ry Cooter, like Paris, Texas and stuff, because I'm the kind of person that, you know, reads, <laughs> reads everything on the album covers, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, that's when things got difficult for us. We put out a record called um, The Killer Inside Me, and it was made over a long period of time. And it was pretty bombastic, you know. Um, and that's kind of when we hit the wall, you know, the, you know, mm -hmm. the producer started complaining about the drummer and blah, 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 blah you know, all that uh, stuff. Yeah. And then we did a bus tour and we were kind of separate from each, a little more separate from each other. And I think, I think uh, the, in many ways we were just burnt by the end of mm -hmm. that, you know. Um, it's interesting you say that. I t not only do I talk to a lot of bands, but being in a band myself for years, there was a closeness in the band on tour when there's windows and everybody's sitting upright in a van. Once you go to the bus tours and you can close your curtain, you can sleep during the day and stay up at night while other people sleep, you can completely separate, you know? And then you can throw in separate backstage rooms where the rhythm section says one or maybe some other. You can almost, you almost have to stay hungry um, in, in the touring world to be, well, I guess it depends on how long the touring was because if I had to be in a van for all those years for at a certain point, yeah, you gotta I would have gone nuts. Yeah, exactly, well, exactly. Well, you know, having been on both sides of it, I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, mm -hmm. I remember uh, in, when we were doing the festival circuit that summer, we did a lot of gigs with Echo and the Bunnymen and they were touring mm -hmm. in a van. Mm -hmm. And I heard from somebody, I don't know if I heard from, you know, we had the same booking agent or something. They said, well they found that when they were in a bus, they weren't hanging out and they weren't listening to the same music and they weren't grooving, you know? And so on that's that so tour, cool. On that tour, they did a lot of covers, you know, they did like a television mm -hmm. song and did like a Van Morrison song, you know, they did a couple of velvet songs. And, um, some of my friends who know about those kind of things said, yeah, that's generally regarded as the best period of Echo and the Bunnymen, you know? That's so crazy. Actually my old manager for years was their guitar player for a while, not uh, Will, but, 
his name is Michael Jobson, nicknamed Curly, Curly Jobson, Scottish guy. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, that's one of my favorite bands, probably of all time. Like, well, Kelly Stoltz I, ended up being drafted into the fold, um, and he's a friend of mine. Nice. Yeah. It's just so crazy. Get to yeah. play with your heroes. Good stuff. So I wanted to ask you a couple things. A, being a San Francisco musician, you know, I toured through there in the 90s with Convoy, Louis the 14th. Great band. Thousands. I, I, I've, it I've was, seen Convoy. We played together. Yeah, I, I, I did play a few shows with you. Maybe in San Diego one time. And I think a Mother Hips show at the Great American Music Hall. What do I mean? I think. I know it, actually. I know yes, it, yeah. I was stoked I mean, to be I mean, there. Like one of their final shows. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. Like the Christmas shows or something. Um, it's always great. Always I keep up with time. Jason a little bit, you know? Oh, good. Yeah. He's still my best bud. He's just right up the road in LA. So, um, yeah. But that said, I saw the city, like, transform, you know? Obviously, the music scene there. In the 90s, I mean, I'd go couch sleep and couch surf with my friends' houses on Haight and Ashbury. Now, if you don't have a gazillion dollars, you don't live on Haight Ashbury as an independent musician these days. And like you said, the term priced out. I know a lot of friends who were San Francisco musicians who became Bay Area musicians, and now they're East of Nashville musicians. You know, just, it got expensive to live there. Do you see, um, Kind of a change in the scene and in, in, in your time there of you know well, i could tell i mean there's a lot of things yeah sure obviously the money came to town it got mm -hmm. here you know mm -hmm. we got dragged into the same trap as new york and london you know boohoo but you know i remember like dirk dirksen was really the first promoter here you know he booked him a boohe gardens and you know i remember one night I was standing, like summer night, I was standing on the sidewalk and across the street from the Babuhe Gardens was a club called The Stone. It was a big rock club, you know, and uh, and they were putting the letters up on the marquee like one at a time, spelling Dead Kennedys, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of looking at that and I was looking at, I, you know, I was like 16, I was like looking at Dirk Dirksen, I was looking at that and he goes, Dirk just goes, yeah. I talked to Jello about that, but you know, he said they want to quit their day jobs and, you know, they, they, they want to go for the money. And he said, listen, kid, when people want to quit their day jobs, you can guarantee the scene's over. Because back then, it was like, take the vow of poverty and be an artist. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's hard for people to understand because in the 90s, like, there was so much horrible stuff that just had you know multi-platinum records you know <laughs> and and that gets into people's heads you know and it, and it changes the game mm -hmm. um it's just yeah. like what the it's just like what blockbusters did to the film industry you know mm -hmm. you don't see movies like the last detail you don't see movies like paris texas you know you don't see those smaller medium-sized movies like why the, the major the major studios are like why fucking bother man we're swinging for the fences yeah, yeah, it's just a numbers game. Hopefully, Netflix actually is changing that a little bit because they've got so much money and they have to invest in content. They don't kind of care how good the content ends up being. And so you can see some indie stuff that comes through, but then there's just a lot of stuff that's kind of whack too. But Well, you know, 
they're they're in such a fucking hurry to to win the race, you know, the yeah. content race, and you know, circle their wagons around as much own as much content, get as much of the market share as they can. It's mm. like nobody cares about this stuff. I mean, I watch some of these these uh, episodic. I mean television things and the three episodes in i'm like what am i doing yeah you know, I know. they just put it's on like, a, like somebody puts on a song and then they just start dancing and i could see the director's like looking at his watch like oh man we're 22 minutes in we just need four more minutes you know, <laughs> you know it's like, you're so right and, and you see and you see how it's the same location you know um there's no real vision nobody at the studio is giving notes there's nobody like when i make an album or i'm working on an album say i'm do, um, as a session guy like talk about cake you know mm -hmm. you know i went up to sacramento and they had a bunch of guitar players play on that record after they lost their guitar player who was a brilliant guitar player they lost him and um so they were kind of bringing in a, there was like a revolving door of guitar players and I went up there and, you know, when I'm doing a session, I just kind of look around the studio and I'm like, who's the guy here that's losing sleep at night, staring at the ceiling and there's like bats flying around the room, you know, mm -hmm. who's that, you know, and in the case of cake, easy, you know, John, it was John McRae, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and John was intense, you know, and really fucking difficult. But I remember that about him as well. But the same at the same time, I really liked him because he was difficult. Because at least I knew where he was coming from. It was it was important to him, you know. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you give these people budgets to make you know to to make these Netflix series, and nobody gives a shit, you know. Mm -hmm. You can tell nobody gives a shit. You're like three episodes in, and you're like, well, this is this is I'm you know this is this is a waste of time. It's garbage. Mm -hmm. And they think they're so be above and beyond the studios, you know. Um, let me ask you, they let don't me, have any taste. Let me ask you a question, <laughs> uh, music, more music related. So, you know, like there's a new musician trying to, to make this their life work every day of being born and out there trying. Um, there's a ton of ways to do it now. I mean, shit, look at like the most listened popular song ever now came through TikTok. You have tons of different mediums. What do you think? Like if somebody came to you and said, hey, I want to be a musician. What, 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 what's your best advice? Well, let's, you know, take the vow of poverty and get on with it. You know, uh, I, I don't want to engage in a boring conversation about cassettes or CDs or vinyl or, you know, MP3s, you know, if it's something that you want to hear more than once, you're going to seek it out, you know, mm. um, you know, and, and seek out teachers, you know, as I, I say, that's probably good advice. You know, I mean, I, I feel like I sought out teachers, you know, I had people like, um, Jim Dickinson and, and Greg Lease, and I got to work with some great producers and I, I, um, stole every trick that they let out of their bag, man. <laughs> you know, you do. <laughs> I mean, that would be my advice is to say, <clears throat> find somebody, Find somebody that's doing something better than you and, uh, you know, think of what a smarter guy would do and then do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also heard you say that, you know, make a song that's worth listening to twice. Well, that's the magic, you know, and we could be talking about film here. We could be talking about poetry or, 
painting or, you know, you can learn the craft. I could teach you the craft. You know, I could say this is a verse, this is a chorus. Right about now, you might want to go somewhere different. We'll call that a middle eight and, and, then, and then give them the cookie. Give them the cookie, mm -hmm. you know. Go back to that <laughs> chorus. It's all about give me the cookie. You know, I could teach you all this kind of like craft. Um, and, you know, and you can get ideas. The ideas are out there. They're floating around. You can borrow an idea from somebody else. It really doesn't matter. And you can learn to craft these things together. But that third element that we're all looking for is, is the mystery. It's the magic, you know. It's like, what is it about? Um, are you, were you talking about Fleetwood Mac earlier? No, no but I would. Talk about him. What, what's the biggest song on TikTok? Oh, uh, Old Town, Old Town Road's the biggest song ever that came through TikTok. Well, you know, who could have picked that? You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's the, I'm just saying like, that's the magic and that's what we're all looking for. Yeah. There's people out there that might, you know, if you're in a band, you want to work with a producer, um, they'll tell you that they can help you find, they don't know. Okay. Mm -hmm. they, they just need to admit that they don't know. Nobody knows anything. We don't know what that is, but but we're searching for it. I think we're all mm -hmm. searching. I mean, you know, when Michael Jackson was still alive, he was searching for it. Yeah, you got to keep and the search never ends. I mean, once you make a record, even if you have success with that record, I, you know, even personally, I, 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 I hate the feeling like a one trick pony. You always search for the new. You always search for what's the next magic. I think Huey Lewis said it best. I want a new drug. There's no better drug than that feeling of going, I just wrote the best verse. I well, love my verse I just wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And music has evolved, you know, in the sense that um, initially, if it was a Gershwin song or something, you know, it might be like 36 measures before something repeats. Mm -hmm. And then in the 50s and 60s, when, you know, people started, um, when the 12 bar, you know, with the five turn around and when that became popular, you know, people made fun of it, you know, mm -hmm. you know, but it fit a different format, which made it's it like Frank Zappa, you know, Joe's garage. Like, and we only know three chords. Like, is he being ironic or <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. You know, I mean, I think three chords are pretty cool. So, mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, hip hop comes along and you've got these hits that are just two measures two measures just repeated you know yeah and um so music has de-evolved and it, it it helps to i think it helps for a young artist to to be a fan you know i mean to dig it to find the stuff that that tickles your monkey bone and mm -hmm. and be a fan and and learn the stuff and unlearn it and insert your own lunacy into the frame and um you know uh I tell that to people all the time in terms of like songwriting. It's like, well, you know, what are you listening to? Oh, I don't really listen to anything. I don't want to, you know, get too influenced. Okay. All right. Well, all I'm going to say is it, it helps <laughs> yeah. to be a fan. Yeah, it does. In my Absolutely. experience. Mm -hmm. For sure. Good advice. Yeah, that, that, that does at home. It's, it's an interesting thing. And the magic thing, you know, if it happens for you. Great. Just happens this way. Songs are, mm -hmm. um, what are you up to right now? What, what What's going on in, in your musical world and what do you got planned coming up? Well, Show I've been working on a musical. 
I've been working on a musical, and you know the pandemic has really sidelined me in a big way. I mean, I I feel like I'm traumatized. Mm -hmm. I've been. Uh, I I live by the house rules here, uh, and uh, look at uh, the house rules that uh, around here are tough, man. So you know, both my wife and I, who plays in my group, Stephanie, uh, you know, we're both vaccinated, and we're slowly coming out of our cave, you know, and. Mm -hmm. Um, I got together the other day with, uh, with my friend Kurt, who I, I write a lot with, and, and we took one more pass at this musical that we kind of had to sideline uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, really. And so we're thinking, yeah, maybe we'll get it out one more time. It's, we've gone through two producers and um, two theater companies, and um, so we did a little bit, of a, re little bit of a rewrite, and that was... There you uh, go. That was, uh, you know, that was probably felt good. That was rewarding. Yeah, that, that was fulfilling. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. is the plan to, to get that put together and and get it on stage? That's, or? That, that's another podcast. Yeah, we've 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 had many table readings. We had a stage reading at a place here called Piano Fight. Uh, we were trying to raise some money. We fell out with the theater company. We put it back on the shelf. I went out and I was playing, you know, touring behind whatever record I was touring behind. And, um, you know, we just kind of put it on the shelf, but we pulled it back off and we dusted it off and, and uh, it went down pretty easy. We were surprised. Mm -hmm. Well, cool. you put, you put a record out last year. Yeah. I assume you didn't tour on it. Do you have any plans to get out and play it live? I've got a lot of gigs. I mean, they're coming in every day. I told the agents, you know, to stop calling me and stop giving me updates, you know, because they, they're like, you know, Chuck, we're, I'm really good in a crisis. And I'm like, okay. You know, the first time they rescheduled them, I was like, that's great. You know, the second time they rescheduled them, I was like, okay, I think, you know, and then I was like, just let me know when they're on. I'll be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're at right now. And we have a month of, we have a residency uh, in August that we're going to play uh uh, in a town called Pengrove, California, about an hour north of the city. And I'm hoping that by the end of those five Sunday nights that that we'll be feel like a band again. You know, that, mm -hmm. that's kind of that's that's got me feeling a little anxious. God, that's like an uh, that's an ideal gig for someone at least of my age. God, you just go, drive out on a Sunday, rock out, maybe crash there, then drive home for the week, then drive right back up for the gig. Yeah. It's going to be like a six to eight outside gig. So, you know, I think, I think we'll make it home. Turn and burn. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's fantastic. Chuck, you're right. We need another podcast because we've scratched the surface of what you do. Um, look forward to hearing more from you. We, but right now we want to turn on our audience to maybe someone who hasn't heard of Chuck Prophet. There are people living under stones. Um, what's a good, good first impression of something who's never heard of you to be turned on to you? Well, I gotta tell you, you know, sometimes I go to see a band that I'm a big fan of, and I think one of the cruelest things that they can say to the audience mm -hmm. is, this is a new song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's when they I'm go gonna, to the bar. <laughs> I'm gonna ask for a new song here. I've got Excellent. a song called High as Johnny Thunders out there, and maybe you guys nice. that. That's off the new record. Cool. Awesome. awesome. Well, we can't wait. Here it is, Chuck. Huge fan still. Can't wait to keep the uh, track of what's going on. 
You're welcome yeah, why don't you back bring anytime. Compressors with you next time we visit. Absolutely, those things that they're tour worthy. They're in a case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you bring those with you. Um, <laughs> That's a deal. And uh, keep smiling, gentlemen. I appreciate the um, chat, and I I like what you're doing. And uh, um, what about Louis the Fourteenth? Any gigs? We had a big tour planned, you know, for last year. Actually, the craziest thing is, is it was supposed to start March 17th, year of the pandemic. My daughter was born a month early on March 7th. Um, so that kind of pushed, uh, we were actually kicking it off in Sacramento and San Francisco were the first two dates. And um, those were pushed. I was supposed to join in Vegas, uh, which would be our first night of that tour. And then the pandemic was like, the last place you wanted to be was the international hub for countries getting together in a casino and breathing on each other. So yeah, that was, was it. And then it's just same as you. It was rescheduled for November, rescheduled for March. And um, call me when it's on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck with all that. And, and you uh, too. Yeah. Thanks for including me on your podcast. Yeah, man. Anytime, man. Podcast, right. Anytime. It is. Yeah. Is it, is it going to be the cameras and everything? Oh, yeah, I'd probably I mean, go on YouTube, but the podcast shows okay. up on other things. Oh, yeah. It. There's enough bad stuff out there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> All right, Chuck. Good right, to see you, Chuck. We'll talk soon, Thanks. man. All right. I'll meet you, my friend. If Bukowski was good looking. And Napoleon was tall If Joan of Arc just took her meds She'd be a movie star If up was down and down was up Imagine where we'd be The New York Dolls would still be here Music would be free and I'd be High as Johnny Thunders In the land that time forgot High as Johnny Thunders Well, if Romeo and Juliet Had a couple kids Shakespeare would be on the door And not be president I'd sit there with my feet up All hours of the night I'd be talking to my baby I'd say, baby, let's not fight And I'd be high As high as Johnny Thunders In the land that time forgot High as Johnny Thunders Together, 
I'd have a window seat And all the children of the world Would have enough to eat If heartbreak was a virtue Man, I'd be so virtuous To get back in your pants I might hijack a city bus And I'd be high As high as Johnny Thunders In the land of time forgot High as Johnny Thunders 